fact, the worst president of the United States. And so, really terrible. Look him up. Um, but we grew up there. We met in the fourth grade when we were nine and ten years old. Uh, it took me, what, eight years to become dateable. And so then we uh, started dating our senior year of high school, went to college together at uh, Azusa Pacific University, got our degrees in biblical studies, uh, took our little Jonah detour away from ministry and thought, you know what we should do? Let's sell chicken. Let's own a Chick-fil-A. And so that brought us back to Washington. We were going to own and operate uh, one of the first five or 10 Chick-fil-A's in the state. Uh, and the Lord, what he really did was just use that to bring us back here and said, actually, you know what you're gonna do? You're gonna go plant a church. So I've been on staff at Resurrection Church in Tacoma for the last two years, and I'm now a church planting resident, uh, which means basically my entire job is to learn and be trained and equipped to build up a core team to be sent out here to Gig Harbor to plant a new church so that we could see disciples make disciples and churches plant churches. That's kind of our thing. It's what we're passionate about. So uh, I was really excited first to meet Michael, but then to have him invite me here uh, to speak. Tonight, like he said, we're going to be in Psalm 27. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there or scroll there on your phone, whatever you got to do. Uh, this psalm was written by David, as a lot of psalms were, King David, in a time of great anxiety, a great uh, fear, adversity in his life. And oftentimes we think of David as only this brave figure who like, killed a giant when he was a teenager and led the armies of Israel in victory time and time and time again. But what we see in this psalm is a time that is, is really faced with a lot of fear. So let's look together at this psalm. I'll read all the way through, top to bottom, and I'll pray, and we'll jump in. Psalm 27, this is the word of the Lord. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in your anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God, of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen up against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. 
Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for your word that you have revealed yourself to us and that we get to know you personally through it. I pray that you would be with us in this time, that you would be present here because we need your presence. So we invite you here, Lord, and pray these things in your holy name. Amen. So how many of y'all just like grew up in church? Like, not like... Like, you know what I mean when I say, like, grew up in church, you're like, yeah, I was there every single week. I was a pastor's kid, so I, like, grew up in church. I see another pastor's kid. Stay strong. Therapy's great. Uh, it's really helpful. Um, but, so if you, if you grew up in the church or if you've been around the church for any real length of time, you might know these, like, churchy phrases that people say that have started to rub you the wrong way or that you can just like see through as an empty phrase or where you're like, have you even thought about what that means? And for me, one of these phrases is the fear of man. I grew up uh, in a church where I only ever heard that phrase from like real big, muscular, like ex-military or like construction worker type dudes. Like, and the only context I've ever heard it in was like, Oh, well, I'll take care of that. I don't have a fear of man problem. I'll go talk to that person. I don't have a fear of man problem. And so what I began to hear in that was, I might have a pride problem, but I'm going to take care of this issue. And so really, growing up, I knew that like the fear of man was a thing that I think the Bible talked about, but I didn't really want anything to do with it because I equated it with this kind of like prideful, puffed up attitude. And so I never really thought about it. And then literally my first assignment as a church planting resident with Resurrection was, hey, write a whole theological research paper about the fear of man. I was like, great. I hate that idea. I don't even like the concept because it has this connotation in my mind. But I started looking into it, and I started realizing, oh wait, I think I might have a fear of man problem. But I found comfort in Psalm 27, because guess what? So did David. And as we look through this psalm, we'll see not just a brave king who led the army in battle again and again, but we'll see somebody who dealt with the fear of man in a really raw, honest way. So we're going to look at what, what is this fear of man, what does this phrase actually mean biblically through the lens of Psalm 27? Look with me, if you will, at verse 1. It says this, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom should I be afraid? See, it kind of sounds like what David is saying is like, I'm not afraid. But consider for a moment why someone in the ancient Near East would sit down to write a song of prayer to God. Do you think his motivation would be something like, I'm going to tell everyone how unafraid I am? Or might his motivation have been something more like, oh crap, I'm scared. And I need to turn to God in this moment. But it's not just like some general fear that David appears to be dealing with. 
Because he doesn't say, I'm not afraid of anything, nor does he say, why should I be afraid or what should I fear? Instead, he says, whom? Of whom shall I be afraid? Whom should I fear? So David appears to be finding himself in this situation where he's confronted by at least an opportunity to fear other people, to fear man rather than God. So before going any farther, let's just ask that question, what is the fear of man? Now to understand the concept, it helps to think about the word fear for a moment. And our English translation doesn't do this verse very well because David actually uses two different words here in verse 1 for fear. The first is the word yarah. I took Hebrew in college, and it's just real fun to say Hebrew words, so we all say yarah. Yarah! Thank you, that was an enthusiastic yarah. Uh, yarah is a word that means fear, but it means something more like reverence or awe. This is the word that we typically think of when we think of the phrase to fear God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom and understanding. That's yarah. It's a sense of awe toward God. It's, it's like standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon. We went on a road trip a couple of years ago, and we're driving through the desert to get to the Grand Canyon because we're on a road trip, and we've got to go to the Grand Canyon if we're on a road trip, so we're driving through the desert, and we come up on this like huge toll booth, and we're like, okay, I guess that's how we get to the Grand Canyon. So we wait in line, and we get through the toll booth, and we find a parking spot, and we get through the gift shop, and blah, 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 and finally, all that's in front of us is just like a hole in the ground, and it's massive, and we walk up to the edge of it, and it's breathtaking, and you look out, and your eyes and your mind are consumed with nothing but the majesty of this canyon, and you're in awe, and reverence, fear, is what the Bible calls that. That's the first kind of fear. The second kind of fear is the Hebrew word, I might be getting this one wrong, but I'm going to go for it anyways. I'm pretty sure it's tacha. Can you say tacha? It's in the back of the throat, right? Tacha. This is the word that means dread or terror. See, this is the fear when you're at the edge of the Grand Canyon and you're looking out and everything is great and then you look down. And you see a bird soaring 200 feet below you and your stomach drops. And your hands get sweaty. Dread. Terror. This is fear. You may not realize it, but these different types of fear actually can come out in how we relate to other people. Have you ever felt either of these? Have you, have you ever felt when looking at someone that sense of overwhelming reverence and awe to where it consumes your entire mind? Maybe it's a, a celebrity or an athlete, somebody that you look up to, you know, their, their style, their platform, their popularity. Or maybe it's someone whose approval or high opinion of you that you want so badly, that mentor, that friend, that you're consumed with what they think of you. Or have you felt that dread or terror when thinking about someone? Maybe it's a person in a position of power that if they just were in the right mood, they could make life really hard for you if they wanted to. 
or that group of people in your work or at your school that seems to know everything about everyone and everyone's opinion of you is shaped by what they think. These are all the Grand Canyon, <laughs> and you're standing at the edge, consumed with nothing else. It's different forms of the fear of man. Simply put, I've heard it said that the fear of man is the idol of someone else's acceptance of you. See, what happens is we elevate the thoughts, the opinion, the approval of others to a level that should only be reserved for how we approach with God. And since we live in community with others, with our family, with our friends, our co-workers, our classmates, our church community, we're constantly surrounded by people, which means we're constantly surrounded by opportunities to fear man. So at some point, it's not about whether or not you have a fear of man problem, it's how you deal with the opportunity when it presents itself. So let's continue looking at the psalm and ask the question, well, who do we fear? Who did David fear, and who might we be tempted to fear when they come into our life? We'll see two different types of people that we tend to fear. Look at verse 2 with me. It says, when evildoers came against me to devour my flesh, my foes and my enemies stumbled and fell. Sorry, y'all, my mouth is getting real dry. So look, look here at the two different types of people that David mentions. First, he, refer, he refers to evildoers. Now, it's not clear to me exactly who that is, and I'm not convinced that it's clear to David who that is either. It's just kind of like this general, out there, anyone who could do evil to me at some time, evildoers. It could be anybody. And for some people, this is how the fear of man presents itself. Some people are anybody fearers. You know, I, I might ask, who do you tend to fear? And you're like, well, it depends on who's around me at any given moment. This person might be identifying as like a people pleaser or, or a yes man, but what's really happening is they're experiencing just a general desire for acceptance from someone and they'll look for it anywhere. There's not just one person that they look to, it could Come, they're not picky. It could just come from anyone as long as they get that acceptance or approval. But look what else David says. He refers to my foes and my enemies. See, now it's personalized. It's specific. This is a fear of somebody in particular. Some people are someone fears. This is the fear of a parent or a spouse, or a significant other, what they might say or think about you. It's the overwhelming concern about the opinion of your boss, or of this guy, or of that girl. And I've got to just like admit, as I've been spending time reflecting on this psalm and this idea of fear of man, I've realized that I'm a somebody fearer. Are you an anybody fearer or a somebody fearer? I fall into that second category. There is a person whose opinion I value above all others. A person that 
I look to for, for approval. I can, I can be rejected by other people, cannot get the acceptance or the, or the high marks, whatever, and I'm fine. But if, if I don't live up to this person's expectations, I'm not satisfied. In my case, the someone that I tend to fear is me. This was like such a revelation for me. This was the moment that I went from, I don't have a fear of man problem, to like, oh crap, yes I do, and he walks around with me all the time. I grew up in a really high achieving family. My dad has a doctorate, my mom is about to finish her doctorate, my brother just graduated law school, my sister was a valedictorian, on and on and on. So the narrative that I told myself and that I lived out of from a really young age was like, just to fit in, you actually have to stand out. And if you're not standing out, then you're not doing it right. No one ever told me that, but I internalized this message to the point where my own standard for myself became more important than God's standard for me. My motivation for doing things was to, was to earn my approval when God says you could never do enough to earn your approval, but guess what? I approve of you anyways in Jesus. See, when I fall into the snare of the fear of man, I regard my own opinions higher than God's. Proverbs 29, 25 says that the fear of man is a snare. A snare is not just a trap. It's a trap that's hidden with a piece of bait right in the middle of it that you're tempted to go for every single time until you find yourself trapped by it. When you think about the times when you care about the approval of others more than the approval of God, who do you think of? Are you a someone fear or an anyone fear? Now, the next thing that we see as we continue through this psalm is not just who we tend to fear, but how do we fear or why do we fear? And I'm going to try to go through this uh, a little bit more quickly, and we're going to jump around a little bit. So let's look at verse 3. David says, Though an army deploys against me, my heart is not afraid. Though a war breaks out against me, still I am confident. Armies and wars, I don't know about you, but I think that David might be concerned for his physical well-being. And sometimes we fear people because we fear, fear being harmed by them. You might say that, like, isn't David saying that he's not afraid? But notice how he says it. He says, though an army deploy against me, though a war break out, still I will not be afraid. What he's saying is like, this is happening, and it seems like the most natural consequence of this happening should be that I would be scared out of my mind. But for some reason, I'm not. What he's saying is that it would normally cause fear, and it's true for us too, when we face like that fear of threat of whether it's physical, emotional, social, spiritual, it's a natural response to fear. And I think more often than physical harm, maybe this is just me, but I tend to, to stay away from the emotional harm. That's, that's the motivation for that fear. See, a fear of potential harm can control our actions and, and lead us to just avoid or forego relationships that we would otherwise pursue or to stay in relationships that ought to be ended. 
hear me for a moment. I'm not saying that we should walk into or stay in relationships that are abusive, manipulative, or harmful. God doesn't want that for you. And neither do I. But remember, the fear of man is a snare. It's a trap with a bait in the middle. And when we're confronted by a threatening situation, whether it's physical or emotional or whatever else, safety can become the bait that lures us into the trap. It's when this fear overshadows everything else in our minds, including how we view God, that we find ourselves trapped. We can be so consumed with how people will treat us that our motivations and our actions and our desires are shaped by the avoidance of any pain whatsoever. So we can fear man by being controlled by the idea that somebody might cause us harm. But how else can we fear? We see the next one in verse 10. So skip down there with me. He says, even if my father and my mother abandon me, the Lord cares for me. See, very often we fear rejection from the ones that know us best and love us the most. The people that we're closest to. There's another translation, I'm using ESV, but another translation says, my mother and my father have forsaken me. I'd ask you to imagine that pain, but perhaps for some of you in the room, you don't have to imagine what it is to be forsaken by a loved one. I heard it said, but the thing we fear most in life is to be fully known and yet unloved. And the closer we are to someone, the more it will hurt if they abandon us. And so there are moments when we can allow this desire for acceptance to control our hearts and the fear of others ensnares us. One way this sometimes comes out is by changing something about ourselves just to keep somebody around. Maybe you've seen a friend do that where they, you know, meet somebody new and they change their clothes, they change their hobbies, they change the way they talk, just to keep this person from leaving. Little change by little change, they're lured in to the trap of fear of man. So sometimes we fear pain or harm, sometimes we feel fear being abandoned or rejected, sometimes we fear having a bad reputation, being misunderstood or misrepresented. We see this in verses 11 and 12. David says it this way, teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. See, the last one is about being known but not loved. This is about not being known at all. Have you ever had somebody make a judgment about you without knowing you? Or even worse, they know but intentionally lie about you to somebody else to where it damages your reputation. Or maybe it was something as innocent as a misunderstanding, but now they see you in a negative light all the time. See, when this fear controls us, it can sometimes lead us to just not engage. And we feel like what we're doing is rising above it or somehow being victorious over it. But what we're really doing 
just crawling into the cage, silently, shutting the door politely behind us, and taking our seat, happily controlled by the other person's opinion of us. One pastor says it this way. He says, the fear of man can immobilize when we should take action. It can gag us into silence when we should speak. And that feels powerful, but its power is deceptive. So we see that everybody at some point will be confronted by an opportunity to fear people. Now you might fear someone, you might fear anyone, you might fear for safety, for reputation, for acceptance. And you might hear all that and still be like, so what? So what if my actions or my, my desires are a little bit shaped by somebody else? As long as I'm not doing anything like really bad, like outright rebellion against God, what does it matter? Basically, that question is asking this, where does the fear of man lead us if we give in to it? To answer that question, let's look back up the verses at verse 9. David says this to God, do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not leave or abandon me, God, my salvation. See, this is interesting to me. One of the main words and ideas to describe God throughout the entire Bible is faithfulness. Just in the Old Testament, we see that God is faithful again and again and again. He's faithful to Noah, he's faithful to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to the people of Israel, to Moses. He's faithful to David. David wrote song after song about the faithfulness and steadfast love of God, and yet here he pleads for God to be faithful. Why? Here's what I think. You might agree with me on this or not, but I think that it, it's true that we tend to turn our eyes to whoever we are fearing. The one that we fear is the one that we pay the most attention to. So when we fear man, what we do is we take our eyes off God, bring them down to something else. When others are elevated in our lives, might be a better way to think about it, when others are elevated into our lives, it starts to cloud our vision of who God is in reality. So we see a distorted view of who he is. Here's the thing, though. The, that, that fear starts to tell us false stories about God. It's a fear that causes us to say, I'm afraid that someone else will hurt me. God, please don't hurt me. I'm afraid that someone else will leave me. God, please don't leave me. I'm afraid that someone else will misunderstand me. God, don't misunderstand me. It's a false image of who God is in our minds. See, it creates in our minds a God that inflicts pain, but the God of the Bible heals. It creates it, uh, an image of God who, who doesn't understand or doesn't know us, but the God of the Bible created you, pursues you, knows you and loves you still. The fear of man creates an image of a God who forsakes his people when times get hard. But the true and living God is faithful, steadfast, immovable, committed to the good of his people. 
people who are called according to his purpose. So fear of man leads to having a distorted view of God. Begs the question, what's the solution? Like, how do we get out of the fear of man? Growing up in church, my understanding of the fear of man is, okay, if I want to not fear man, I either have to be super arrogant and just not care what people think, or just continually be like, self-righteously, oh, I looked at some, oh, look back to God, oh, I did something, look back to God. Again and again and again, and friends, the answer is never something that we can do. The answer must always be done on our behalf. David talks about this, verses 4 through 8. I'm just going to read this through and see what sticks out to you. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. Now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. What is it that David needs in his moment when he's confronted by the fear of man? It's not to be brave. It's not to simply not care what other people think. The solution to David's fear problem and to ours is the very presence of God with him. David speaks of his longing for God's presence in his life in so many ways. He asks and seeks to dwell in the house of the Lord, to inquire in his temple. He wants to be hidden in God's shelter, covered in his tent. This is all temple language. This kind of language is used throughout the whole Bible to talk about God's presence on earth with his people. Not just some general, abstract presence where God is somehow like floating in the ether, but his personal presence where he can be found. Side by side, face to face. Look at the other language that he uses. He wants to, to gaze upon the beauty of God. You said, seek my face. My heart says, your face, Lord, do I seek the answer that we need to rid us Fear of man is the presence of God in our lives, to be aware of his presence and to live in that light. See, friends, the good news is not just that we worship a God who wants to be present with us or who could be present with us. It's a God who is present with you now. And you can trace his presence through the entire story of the world. The Bible says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and the Spirit of God hovered over the deep waters. God was present from the beginning. He created Adam and Eve and set them in the garden and came in the evening time, the cool, breezy part of the day, to walk and talk with them. God was present in the garden. When the people of Israel were being led out of Egypt and through the wilderness, God led them by a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. God was present in the wilderness. When they were sent into exile to Babylon, 
for a generation. They were away from the temple. God's presence went with them. He is not bound to the temple. God is present with his people. And then God did something even more incredible. Knowing that we were sinners and needed saving, God the Son, Jesus, stepped out of heaven, added humanity to his divinity to come among us to live as one of us so he could identify with us and us with him. And he lived a perfect life present among his people. He died a death he didn't deserve so that we could be made right face to face with God the Father. And he rose to show us that there is new life in the presence of God forever. It's a life that doesn't start sometime way in the future after we die. It starts now. Because before he ascended, Jesus promised, I will send my spirit to be with you. So we live right now, every day, fully in the presence of God. The God who created us, who pursues us, who saves us, who empowers us. So we don't have to fear man. Because God has given us his presence. So we're free. How are we free to live? Rather than fearing man, we can trust God and wait for the Lord. I mentioned Proverbs 29, 25 earlier. The fear of man is a snare. The second half of that verse says, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. See, the opposite of fear in man is to trust God. When we fear punishment or harm from man, we trust God for grace. When we fear rejection, we trust that Jesus loves us and accepts us at the cross. When we fear for our reputation, being, being misrepresented or misunderstood, we trust that the spirit that dwells in us is at work to change us into the person that he wants us to be. David says it this way at the end of Psalm 27, verses 13 to 14. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and courageous. One translation says, be strong, let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. We can believe that we will look upon the goodness of the Lord now in the land of the living. And when we do, we find ourselves trusting God rather than fearing man. David expresses his trust by waiting. Just waiting for the Lord. See, because God is present with us now, we can take courage as we wait for him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your presence here with us. Not just here, but every day. And we confess that we do not always realize or remember that you are present with us, yet you never leave us. Lord, give us a greater awareness of your presence that would ground us in the times of great fear. Help us to wait on you. In Jesus' name, amen.